this is a really special place for me, this place. You know, you read the uh, Old Testament. The Old Testament was filled with sacred spaces, you know, just those places where you meet God and you just set up the memorial so that you can remember the sweetness of the encounter. It's just, I love it. We, we kind of lose our sense of sacred space, but, but this space is sacred to me. This is, a, this is the space where I got saved, like right there. When I was 12 years old, I was a little dude from Rush, New York. Friends of mine brought me to camp when Christian Youth of Flame was still having camps here back in the day. And uh, it was, as a 12-year-old, sneaking into the high school camp, you had to be 13, so I lied about my age. No, and then here's what I did. I lied about my age every year afterwards in case they went back and checked. I did. Then I ended up directing that camp, and I realized they burn those things. <laughs> they, don't, they don't ever look at those applications, hardly, except for maybe if you have diseases. But outside of that, so I would write every year, I'd just... I was not technically lying. I was always a week out from being the legal age. And so when I was 12, about to be 13, right there, right in that spot, I remember kneeling down, crying my eyes out, not knowing why. All my friends that were in my little cabin group praying for me, I remember it like it was yesterday. Their hands were extra hot and heavy. It was summer, so I was sweaty. I didn't like it. I wanted them to stop praying for me, but I liked how the Lord felt. That was new. And I remember just weeping for days, like right there on that platform, just playing percussion and weeping. And I couldn't even, I don't know one sermon that was preached that week. I just remember being just weeping and weeping and weeping, giving my life to Jesus right there. And then of course I went to this school. I graduated from this school. So during the worship, I snuck downstairs to look at my old dorm room over 4B. I tried to get in. It was locked. You guys are on top of it. <laughs> Anyways, it's good to be home. I love this place. I really love this place. I love this place for what it is. I love this place for what it's been. And I love this place for what the Lord said when he established it. I love what was burning in his heart. That intercessors burning with the Holy Spirit would cry out to God in the hour of the return of Jesus, that, that sent ones would burn for him. That's the, that's the heritage of this place. Raise up messengers of end time revival. That's the, the spirit of this house, the ethos, the, what this house was founded upon. And so to, every time you get to step back into it, you just, you're stepping into the sweetness of a story that's bigger than all of us. And you're stepping into the current of a story. When the Lord goes out of his way to start something, you become a temporary steward and participant of that something. But you're, you're blessed to taste of the moment that you get to be a part of a sovereign move of that which God did. That Again, it's bigger than all of us. The conversations we have about this place, I remember when I was 20, the conversations I had about this place were so stupid. They were 20-year-old arrogant, college, seminary-level conversations. There was no, I'm not saying you have those. You have awesome conversations. I'm saying my conversations were not awesome. But, but just imagine, just imagine for a moment 
we could quiet the noise of the conversations that the world is having. Somebody asked me today, what do you think of Kanye? I don't. What do you think of Beth Moore? I don't. It's just not, why would I, what happened to, it's not my place. She doesn't go to my church. He doesn't go to my church. I'm a dork from Dorktown. Who do I am, who do I think I am imagining I get a voice in anything? Except for the only voice that matters, I get to quiet the traffic and the noise of my culture. I get to quiet the traffic and the noise of my soul. I get to stop for a minute, and I get to peer into and listen in on the conversations of heaven about a place that the Lord touched sovereignly in power. He kissed this place sovereignly 100 plus years ago. What's he talk about when he talks about this place? And do we ever stop from our own personal petitions? And do we ever stop and step out of our own personal concerns? Do we ever stop to wonder if we stepped into the conversation about this sovereign, sacred space, what would the conversation of heaven be? And what are they talking about? I promise you they're not talking about whatever problems and thoughts and concerns and improvements and suggestions. I guarantee that's not the conversation of heaven. Because to the Lord, a thousand years is as a day, a day is as a thousand years. So to the Lord, a minute ago, he touched this place sovereignly and started something in motion. And so his opinions on how it's going are just so different than ours. Because we're, we're, we're so into how it appears to the naked eye. And therefore, we're into our quick, human, limited evaluations of how it's going. I promise you the Lord's opinion of how it's going is not yours. Because a thousand years is as a day, and he's thinking from that thousand-year eternal perspective. He started something. He wasn't asking for your vote. Your contributions are appreciated, but really quite unnecessary. We get to participate as friends, not necessary servants. And so he brings us into this place of friendship to the things that he cares about, the things that are enjoyable and fun to him. And again, he just picks the unlikeliest of places. Lima, New York, we, you never would have picked it. You wouldn't have picked Kansas City, Missouri, I assure you. Lima, New York is at least pretty. You wouldn't have ever picked Kansas City. You would never pick Redding, California, ever. Have you been to Redding? It's the most boring place on earth. You would never pick the places God picks, and it just delights him to just, boom, put his hand on a place and start something and let it get into motion and just run its course, and then he, he entrusts the stewardship of it to weak and broken human beings, and he's not threatened by how bad they are at it. He's not threatened by the smallness and the weakness and the brokenness by which we steward sovereign things. He's just so much bigger and so much more enjoyable than that, and so he lets it run its course. And so I wasn't even planning on saying this. This is just gush and affection about this house. I don't even know what's been going on, but I want to tell you this. Reserve your opinions on how it's going until the race is run, the course is finished, and whatever God had in mind when he put his hand on this region, when it's done, then maybe have an opinion. Until then, let's see if we can eavesdrop, which is what I'm talking about today. I'm talking about John 15, 9, if you want to turn to it. John 15, 9, what we get to do, what we get to be about, what this whole thing is and what it's for, the whole meaning of life wrapped up into one verse, the whole purpose, the sovereign purpose and longing and desire and ache of God. That's, 
Everything I want to tap into, I want to tap into the ache of God, and I want to ache like he aches. So he says it in John 15, 9. He says, as the Father has loved me, as the Father has loved me, as I love the Father, I also have loved you, therefore abide in my love. This verse, I want to boldly suggest making this verse the vision and the course you set for your life. That whatever your life is about and however you define it, whatever you give your time and passion to, whatever you apply your gifting to, I want to urge you to make your life about this verse. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Therefore, live, connect, lay hold of, enjoy, delight in, drink deep of, get under the fountain of the river of pleasure. Pleasure, King David said, at his right hand forevermore. The pleasure of how God loves God that we get to step into and drink deep of and be transformed by. We don't just get to experience it at an altar call. We don't just get to talk about it for a ministry class. We get to drink deep for the entirety of our lives if we want to. We get to connect to the glory of the Godhead and how God loves God. We get to step into something. We don't just watch it from a distance. We don't just talk about it as unfamiliar practitioners. We don't get to talk about it in theory. We have the invitation to take the burning heart of God for God. We have this invitation to take the fire of how the Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Father, the Holy Spirit's in the midst of it, the burning Spirit of God, and they're delighting in one another. They're talking with one another. They're in interacting and engaging with one another. The fullness of life is in the engagement of God with God. The fullness of pleasure is in the engagement of God with God. The fullness of everything that defines what we were born for, what we were made for, what was set within us by our maker, created, formed, and fashioned to drink of the pleasure of how he loves himself, how God loves God in the fire of his passion. We've been given this glorious invitation to spend our lives stepping into the fellowship of it. We've been given this invitation and this glory and this privilege from the new birth. We've been given the means. We've been given the indwelling Holy Spirit of God. We've been given on the inside the the cleansing glory of his grace to, to bring us into fellowship With him, union with Christ, by which we have union with the Godhead. We have connection, life. The the great glory of the human race is that we were made for this. The great tragedy of the human race is we live on a daily basis without it. Even as believers. That's That's the greater tragedy. See, the greater tragedy is that the created fallen being has no idea that this is their glory. This doesn't even make sense. Like this is the most. This would be the most confusing sermon in human. You would, this is not a seeker-sensitive sermon. No unbeliever would grasp. Wait, what now? God loves God, and I can step into God loving God. And when I step into it, it's good. Like, what does that even mean? Like, it's the most bizarre idea in human history. It makes sense to no one, even though it was, even though everyone was made for it. That's that's a great tragedy. The great tragedy of the joy and the pleasure and the life 
I mean, Jesus goes on to say a few verses later, he goes, I'm telling you these things so that your joy can be full. I'm telling you these things so that your joy can be fulfilled. The fullness of joy, the richness of pleasure. I'm telling you these things so that you'll step into the joy of this thing called Christianity, so that you'll step into the joy of it. What's the joy of it? The joy of it is when you love one another the way I love you. What does that even mean? Well, because again, apart from the joy of it, we're just kind of doing the stuff and doing the, doing the ministry stuff and doing the serving stuff. And Jesus goes, no, you, you want to tap into the joy and the pleasure of this. The joy and the pleasure of this is you get to watch us love one another. You get to step into the fire of it. You get to be bathed and washed and cleansed and renewed and filled and overwhelmed. You get to be filled with fire and affection and joy and delight just by stepping into, by getting into the way of how we love one another. You can be overwhelmed by it, lost in it. Then as your heart is undone, you start to get a feel for the second part of the phrase in John 15, 9. What you're feeling right now, what you're overwhelmed by, what you're getting lost in, what's dizzying you in the beauty and the glory and the tenderness and the laughter and the pleasure and the delight, the jealousy. It's not just American acceptance. It's jealousy. It's jealous jealousy. God kind of love, when you step into it, it's longing. It's jealousy. It's desire, it's aching, it's wanting, it's reaching, it's connecting, it's enjoying. Now, as you step into it, you're overwhelmed by the height, the width, the length, and the depth of it all. It's, you're touching a drop, and there's an ocean to be enjoyed. And it hits you. The second part of the phrase, what you're experiencing right now, the way that the Father loves the Son, the way the Son loves the Father, the way that the Spirit is in the midst of it, loving the Father, loving the Son. The way we love one another, that's the way I love you. That's the way I love you. I love you with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, nothing in reserve. I love you with all of my thoughts. I love you with everything that's within my being. I love you with all that I am and every ounce of my strength. I love you with every bit of my creativity and all of my ideas, every resource that's been given me from heaven, all power, all glory, all majesty, all praise, all honor, everything given to me from the Father, I turn and I pour out on you, my beloved one. I love you the way the Father loves me. What you're experiencing right now is how I feel about you. So when Jesus says, I, I tell you these things, that your joy might be full, that you might love one another the way that I love you. He's not just talking about the rote, robotic, routine, disconnected, dull, bored obedience by which we love one another with a stay out of hell kind of love. He goes, no, 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 I want you to love one another the way you've experienced my love for you, which is tapping into the Father's love for me. I want to open up a fountain of tenderness within you. I want to open up, I call it the gush. I don't know if you've ever experienced this. You probably have. You're godly. I call it the gush. You know, I just gush. You ever have this where you're just, you know, you're, you're in a place like you're in a church service on Sunday or 
you're in a corporate worship meeting. It usually happens in corporate worship because when you're singing to God, you know, St. Augustine called it praying twice. When you're singing to God, you're just, you're touching some just deep things that, that surpass our understanding, the experiential knowledge of God expressed through song as we begin to sing. I mean, the most staunch cessationist Baptist sings the most radical spirit-filled Bethel songs. I mean, it's just, there's a, there's a God in heaven and he laughs. And the, uh, because why? Because song tricks us into singing all kinds of stuff we don't even understand, but we're touching deep things when we sing it. And as we do, this crazy thing begins to happen. Our dull, disconnected, bored heart begins to move as we sing. It's beautiful because we're touching beauty, some of the deepest expressions of it. We're touching beauty. We're touching the beauty of God. We're singing about the beauty of God. We're singing about the nature of God, the love of God, the leadership of God. So we're singing about it. It's not just that we're learning it in our knowledge base, which is really important, by the way. But that which we're learning through knowledge is, is touching the deepest places of our emotions, and our heart is moving, and our heart's coming alive. Now, here's the beauty. If you have experienced this, you know, you're singing, and you look across the way randomly, and you just see that dude that, or that girl, or again, don't overdo that point. You see that person that, that just every time, every chapel, they're just giving it all. They're, they're singing their guts out, and you just look at them, and it hits you. I call it the gush. You know, if you're like in a real big church, it sounds like this. It's like, ugh, I don't even know that person. I don't even know them, but I love them. Oh, they're the best. That person, they're the best. It's just, because why? Because you're not evaluating, you're not judging, you're not, which by the way, judging is not as bad as this culture makes it out to be, but I mean in terms of wrong spirit kind of judging, the the kind of arrogant surface level evaluations we make of one another as we superimpose how we feel about ourselves onto them. That's called how we do life in relationships. Accidentally superimposing our own opinions about ourselves and the way that we're hard on ourselves, we just give others the gift of that. But there's something about singing the word touching the Holy Spirit and the fire of God's heart when we sing that bypasses that critical analysis that so fills our daily thought processes. Just goes right past it. Touches our little weak heart. Our little weak heart opens like a flower. It begins to blossom. It, it feels. It moves. And then when we look at that person, we're not seeing the five things that annoyed us yesterday. We're seeing what moves God's heart, which is the reach, the thing that really defines them, the thing that really defines who they are before the Lord, the thing that, that in the eternal perspective of how God views their life, He's not viewing them mostly by the five annoying things they did yesterday. He's viewing them by the reality of here they are again. They're reaching and it's weak, and it's broken, and you could, if you were in that other mood, you could come up with five reasons why that reach isn't so awesome, and yeah, they're singing now, but I know. But it's like that, 
fire of God's affection, that river of pleasure, that little drop, that hint of how God really feels, just that little hint touched your heart, and suddenly it's like those thoughts are 10,000 miles away, and all you can feel is that gush. I love that guy. I love that guy. And your friend next to you is like, what? What are you talking about? That guy's the best, bro. That guy's the best. Like, what, are you, what are you talking about? Shh, 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 don't, I, I love that guy. <laughs> that's, just, that's just the smallest, faintest hint of tapping into what we were made for. When Jesus said, oh, I'm saying this to you, that your joy would be full. See, the, I love a phrase someone coined about what we get to do, the Trinity, the way they love one another, the knowledge of that, the experience of it, the the call to tap into it, but not just that, to, to abide in it, to live in it. Jesus goes, I want you to live here. I don't want you to just come up with a five-step process to touch it on the run. The thing about the heart of God and the deepest places of God's heart in love, they're not made to be caught on the run. You can't make... Abiding in the Trinitarian love of God, you can't make dwelling in the fire of his affections kind of that side pursuit that you add to your ministry, that you add to your studies, that you add to your job so that you can be blessed, stay out of trouble, sin less, have good kids, make sure that life works. I can be a little more moral than yesterday. I can like myself a little better because I'm a little more moral and I can check the box of prayer like I check the box of exercise and essential oils. The Lord's wanting to, uh, to give us the gift of a prayer life, not just a, not just a scheduled prayer time. The gift of a prayer life is not just after the immediate answer, but sees the glory of prayer over decades. And what begins to unfold as we come back again to drink of the deep well of this infinite love and this infinite fire of jealous affection, as we begin to stare at who God is and the spirit of revelation, Ephesians 1, begins to help us make sense of what we see. And then as we see it and as we ask for more, the heart begins to open up and our capacity to receive more begins to grow And we actually move from touching it because we're inspired by a sermon to beginning to live in it. God gave teachers as part of the fivefold gift at his ascension so that we could grow into the same love, John 17, for the same Jesus, Ephesians 4, with the same faith. He's wanting us to grow into something together, so he gives us the gift of teachers that we might grow and reach for something that we didn't know was a thing to reach for apart from teachers advertising and inspiring that it's possible. Of course, even better than teachers are fathers. You have many teachers, but few fathers. In other words, you have many that can tell you what the Bible says, but very few that can show you with their lives that it's worth it, that it's doable, that you can actually get there, that it's worth the pain. 
It's worth the fight. It's worth the misunderstanding. It's worth the mistreatment. It's worth life not turning out the way you thought it should. It's worth the ministry assignment not being what you thought it was going to be. It's worth the, the difficulty of the people you're assigned to, and it's worth the difficulty of you being the assigned. It's worth all that. It's the, it's the, it's the thing. It's the it that makes our lives and our hearts and our reach ministry-proof, American-proof. Because it takes out the American dream repackaged with Jesus' language, and it reinserts this Jesus dream and sets it as our plumb line and our north star, and it makes every season worth it to continue to reach for what Jesus said is the only way to true happiness. It's a big statement. This is the only way to true happiness. John the Baptist said it in John 3.29. He said the same thing. He goes, I, I, I'm the friend of the bridegroom before whom I stand. I hear his voice and my joy is fulfilled. This is the only way to true happiness. There is no other way. There is no other way. Everything else comes as a fruit, which Jesus says in this very passage. Everything else is fruit or works. I'm urging you to, again, see the gold and the glory of what it is we've been brought into and see the joy and the pleasure that's set before us and to not make it that addendum to our Christianity, to not be inspired by the teacher, but do little. Because again, the fivefold. It's, I, I'm not, I'm, I really believe in the importance and the, the, the critical gift of the fivefold ministry to the church. Teachers are necessary. Fathers are great. We need them. But after the teachers have taught and the fathers have displayed and provoked, we have to do it. We have to do it. And what's the it? The it is to really before the Lord go, Lord, I need, a, I need a very different life vision. I need a very different definition of what my life is about. I need a very different definition of success. And success and identity and life vision is about more than being accepted by God. I love acceptance as the front door to this, but I'm finding it's where young people are stopping because young people, shame-filled, racked with guilt, weak and broken, immature, giving themselves to all kinds of foolishness when nobody's looking, they really, 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 really do want to love God, and they really want to burn, and they go up for every I want to burn altar call, but on Tuesday when nobody's looking, it feels 10,000 miles away, and you feel like a massive failure, and so the Holy Spirit filling the earth with identity messages of God's acceptance is very powerful, but not as the end, as a way to get you out of your shame, powerful, as a way to get you out of your performance, powerful, as a way of resetting how you feel about yourself, powerful, but as a front door and not the end, as a front door to what you were really made for, you were made for more than to be accepted feel good about yourself and do good things. You were made to, from that place of acceptance, dive deep into who God is, how God feels, what's burning in His heart, 
what he's all about, what he aches for and what he dreams about, what the things that he's laboring for, coming into that fellowship of his burning heart, coming into fellowship with the fire of who he is, coming into the center of the things that move him and the things that, that give him pleasure, which, of course, is you being moved by him. And as we begin to touch it, we're, we begin to enter into what I believe is the answer to the big question What's the Holy Spirit doing? What's the Holy Spirit saying to the church today? That's always the big question everywhere you go, right? What's the Holy Spirit saying? Holy Spirit's saying it's not very new, creative, or innovative, but we haven't gotten there yet. So he's going to keep saying it until we get there, which is the restoration of the first commandment to first place through the fellowship with the fire of his burning heart and his affection. It's what we get to do. We get to do. Ministry, no offense, we have to do. <laughs> we kind of do. We just ministry, you have to do. The, whatever occupation you get when you're out of here, that's the one you have to do because you have to eat and you got to feed your family. Ministry and job, you have to do. This is what we get to do. And so if we're going to do what we have to do, why not enjoy what it's all about at the core of why we're born and touch the essence of what we're made for as we do what we have to do? It'll end up, your fruitfulness, the flow of your heart, the, the, the way you enjoy unenjoyable people in unenjoyable ministry made enjoyable by an enjoyable God, the way that it turns everything upside down. You step into the fire of his affection, and everything looks different. Everything feels different. That's the secret, by the way. If there's one and only one thing I could leave a group with like this that I care about so much, it's the secret to loving Jesus more with tears at 60 than you did at 20. Because there's real seasons of disappointment ahead. There's real seasons of disillusionment ahead. There's real seasons. It is, it is just never going to look like what you think it's going to. Even the promises that keep us seatbelted to our chair when it's hard, even when the promises come to pass, whatever that prophecy was that they prophesied, I promise you it will never be as awesome in the realization as you thought it was when you heard it at 15. It's just everything else, everything else, that's the downside of this thing that we're made for, the downside is everything else in its consummation will be wildly unsatisfying at the point of arrival. Everything else that we put our hands to will be wildly disappointing. Wildly disappointing. The leader you were hoping to meet someday, wildly unimpressive. The ministry you were hoping to have someday, wildly small and disappointing. The title you were hoping was going to fulfill you, wildly unfun and really kind of annoying. The, the future you thought was going to be so grand because you bought into an American version of the gospel, not awesome. No, there's so much pain, disillusionment, disappointment, not being what I thought it would be. I gave my 20s. What is this? How come it didn't produce? Why didn't they? How come I didn't get picked? Why didn't they? I have my PhD. Why didn't they? How come? No one listens to me. Nobody listened to me before my PhD. Nobody listened to me after. Why aren't? How come? Why? Because the invitation was not for occupational achievement or ministry impact even. 
At the core of it all is a man on a throne with eyes like a flame of fire who's peering into the deepest places of your heart, wanting to unlock everything that beats within you to beat with fire for him. At the core of it all is the way that he feels about you. And it's the thing that ministry and life proofs you. It disappointment proofs you. Why? Because they don't pick you. That's actually kind of awesome when your life vision was to touch the Trinitarian fire of his love. It's like, man, they picked the other guy and promoted him. He's stupid busy. I get to go open my Bible. (laughs) I get to step into that fire again. I get to watch the Trinity, enjoy the Trinity. I get to watch how interested the Father is in the Son. I get to watch how engaged the Son is in the Father. I get to watch how alive they are in their enjoyment and pleasure they take in one another. And I get to remember that that's how Jesus feels about me. And my heart gets to come alive again. And I get to groan and thank Him again and feel it. And that really does, it just makes me America-proof. It makes me American promotion and American success proof because the success that's attainable in Christianity was attainable from the moment I was born again. Whatever happens from this point forward, you're not defined by any of it. You're defined by one choice. Did you touch the love you were born for? Did you you touch the fire of His affection that you were made to drink deep in? Did you? Did you? Or did you find five spiritual-sounding reasons to not? That's, to me, the only regret. If the ministry didn't turn out the way that I wanted it to, if the job didn't turn out the way that I wanted it to, if the people don't like me the way I hoped they would, none of those things need to have regret attached to it because it's all a part of Romans 5, Romans 8, God working it for my good anyways what's good? Well, he works it for my good to work me into the place by grace of being able to experience more of his love. So the things that everybody else regrets are to my advantage in grace to experience more of God. That's the only regret. Did you? Did you leverage this season to drink deep of the Lord or did you get busy on the secondary and the peripheral? Are you going to leverage the next season to drink deep in God and use it as a means to truly love the people around you? Are you going to find true happiness or are you going to continue to settle for something else in the name of fulfillment and busyness? Let's stand. Here's what we want to give our lives to touch. Real easy. We want to touch God's love for God in His Word, in prayer. In life, we want to touch God's love for God. We want to touch God's love for His people. We want to touch God's love for us. We want to be awakened to love others in the same manner. That's what it means to prioritize abiding in His love. We want it to be how our life flows on a minute-by-minute basis. I want to touch how you love you. I want to touch how you love your people. I want to touch how you love me. I want you to awaken how I can love those around me as I love you back. Help me, Lord. All over the room, I'm asking that you would reset hearts. All over the room, as different ones have accidentally in the moment made it about something else, you always call us back to the main thing. 
I'm asking that you would help us to abide in your love, to have a prayer life more than we have prayer times, to have a life drinking deep of the pleasure of your love for you, your love for us, awakening our love for you. I'm asking for the fire in your eyes to cause our hearts to burn with that same fire. You're here this morning, creeping into the afternoon. You're here and you're saying, I I want this, but, but I'm undisciplined, but I'm distracted, but I'm busy, but I'm obligated. You're saying, I want this, but. And what comes next after the word but seems so insurmountable in the moment, but there's so much grace for the one who asks. You're going, I want this, but. Really, the rest of the sentence is, I want this, but I need help. Not, I want this, but I can't do it. I want this, but I need help. I need help. I need creative ideas related to my schedule. I need creative ideas. I need godly counsel. I need wisdom. I need, I need, Lord. I want this, but I need. If that's the ache of your heart, if I'm giving language to something that's been bugging you for a while, you're going, this is it. This is it. I want this, but I'm stuck. I want this, but I need help. I just want to invite you, actually, just to present yourself before the Lord. You don't have to come up front if you don't want to. You can go to the aisles. You can sit, kneel, do whatever you want. But I want to invite you to come out from your chairs and just go to stand before the Lord. I want to pray for you, for grace, that He would right now touch you with, a, with that drop, that taste, that sweetness of the fire of His affections. We're just saying all over the room, here I am. Here I am. As the Father loved you, so you have loved me. Help me love you back. Help me step into the fire of that love. I can't do it apart from your help. I need you. I need you. And I want you. I want to confess today, Lord. I don't just need you to make my life work. I don't just need you to make my ministry and my schooling work. If it all went away tomorrow, if it all went away tomorrow, I want you. If it all went away tomorrow, the job, the role, the title, the recognition, the position, whatever, if it all went away tomorrow, I want you. I'm in it for love. I'm in it for you. Everything else is just the current. Here I am. Here I am, Lord, your beloved one. Here I am, Lord, your favorite one, the one you love. I want to step into the fire. I want to step into the fellowship of your burning heart. I want to burn like you burn. Don't let up. I'm asking, Holy Spirit, don't let up. Keep applying that sweet pressure. All over this room right now, the sweetness of conviction. 
the sweet conviction, the ache of wanting more of you. Awaken a deeper ache. Awaken a deeper ache. I want that Romans 8 groan. When I don't even know how to pray, you help me. I want to ache. I want to long. I want to yearn. Awaken it in me, Lord. I don't just want to busy myself into distraction. I want to ache like you do. In Jesus' name.